0: Welcome to the Pixbook Smoke Podcast with your host, Christopher A.
1: Funderburg. Hi, John. How are you this evening?
0: Good, and I'm John Cribs, and today we've got a really cool special topic uh, and a wonderful special guest. We are joined today live from England, the UK. We have the lovely Lisi Tribble-Russell. How are you today, Lisey? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, I wonder how we even get this started because it's such a cool thing. Uh, that I guess, as a Ken Russell fan, I don't even know if I expected this to ever happen. So, Lisey, why, why don't you be the one to introduce what's going on right now, what you're involved with over
1: yeah, there. Yeah, what we're here to talk about today.
2: Yes. Dance of the Seven Veils, or specifically The Dance of the Seven Veils, was Ken Russell's last uh, authorized show or film a biopic if you will for uh the BBC because he was as soon as he put out this uh broadcast this particular episode film uh 57 minutes of a an incredibly full tilt version of Richard Strauss's life no relation to Johann Strauss, although they were both composers. Uh, And he he used Strauss's diary, uh, which he read. And Ken, of course, was more au fait with classical music than any 10 people. That was his that was his uh, self-educated a hobby, or if you will, although he would have loved to have been a conductor, and is in the film. He gives himself that uh, luxury of conducting Strauss and his wife while they make love. So (laughs) uh, you can see there were images that startled the public, which was Ken's intention, of course, because Ken was a child of World War II. He was a child in World World War II, and he wanted... Um, to drive home the point that we have responsibilities against fascism. So this is somewhat a political film, namely because he used that biting British satire, and Ken's could be more biting than other people's, to (laughs) lampoon Strauss. Um, in, as he calls it, seven episodes, the seven veils coming off. So we get further and further into seeing what he actually did during the war under Hitler and how he, in Ken's eyes, colluded with Hitler. Of course, Ken had sympathy for Strauss. He knew, he said he was up against the wall. Um, I'm on his side. He couldn't help it. On the other hand, he did feel that he was uh a, a given to pomposity to the nth degree and um catering to the enemy in order of course to keep his art going but it 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 over it went over that because he would write letters to hitler and, and uh, huge uh you know worship letters and he he was really um perhaps he was frightened but. It went the other way. He was overly identified with the Nazi regime, being yeah. a German, and he thought maybe Hitler. He told himself maybe Hitler will resurrect a true German music. Um, so
0: all these ideas went into this fifty-seven-minute film that he oh yeah. that aired. Uh, on the BBC in February of 1970, and was pretty much immediately condemned, right, by pretty much yeah. everybody.
1: Yeah. Well, and most, most
0: significantly by the Strauss estate, uh, who refused yeah. to let them use his music uh, for any further airings of the, of the uh, film. So that's yeah. kind of where we stood there, that nobody was going to be able to see the film in this finished version. All right. right. Well, until, until now.
2: Yeah, it was extended to 50 years, the copyright laws changed and until this month it was not able to be seen and even now we had a bit of a you know a lot of negotiating to get it screened up in keswick uh it's a wonderful film but when it came out uh the audience everyone wrote letters but it made a huge furor the audience wrote letters, but they weren't all negative. In other words, and, uh, some people really liked it, and in Keswick, they loved it. And I think, uh, you know, time has been kind to Ken in that way because we've had so much of more brutal. Uh, films out well also time is
1: always kind to really bold original filmmakers in a way that the current moment isn't it's easy to shit on something weird when it's first released and then time says hey that was a really original bold adventurous take on something uh although all of those words feel a little milk toast for how aggressive this film is
2: Yes, and Mary Whitehouse, who was the self-appointed keeper of the uh, public morals. Ooh. <laughs> I, I wish I could meet her. I have met her. We need she, people like that. I've got
1: to be do. able to hate somebody.
2: I love I love her in that way. <laughs> love her. She sued the post office for transmitting it over the wires. You know, she really went the, full, <laughs> uh, the whole log. And... Uh, a parliament was uh, had letters introduced to uh, see what kind of uh, uh, punishment there would be for this uh, show. Or, and oddly enough, or <laughs> I don't think it's really odd, but his his producers at Monitor and at Omnibus, who were all the same team and had worked together since '56, the uh, beginning of Monitor. Uh, an arts program for the BBC, all of those, they were a team, they defended Ken, the the people so-called in charge, the producers and the, um, you know, his mentor, Sir Hugh Weldon, defended Ken in court and in parliament uh, for making this film. So that's...
0: It's great. Yeah, it seems like it could have actually been worse speaking of Mary Whitehouse Because of the BBC's practice of simply wiping their tapes for their 60 shows, you know, if you're a Doctor Who fan There are so many episodes. Yeah, that are just gone that are just lost to time Because of this practice. So you would think something that they actually have that was Generating controversy. They would not really take care of right? They wouldn't really foster it and put it in a nice safe place, you know for later on so I'm glad that, you know, kind of coming out of the 60s, that somehow this was preserved so that a restoration effort was possible all these years later.
2: You know, in your mind, in my mind, I think of some spy saving the one copy, you know, and, and making off with it to protect it, because that's a lot of what happens in those cases like that. And in
0: Yeah, I think of Louis Bunuel, like, burying the last print of Vera Diana, you know, the negative. Yes! So that Franco couldn't get to it, you know.
2: It's very much that. And Ken saved one uh, copy, which is what we showed in Keswick, but apparently the um, BFI has also preserved a a film copy. So that's, we've got hopes that they will take an interest in it.
0: And looking back now, um, other than, you know, the, the life of this particular film, it's fascinating to look at it on Ken Russell's filmography in general. I mean, yeah. this was, as you said, his last film for BBC, it was his first uh, color film of the television films that he he made. And he had spent the 60s doing all these increasingly uh, innovative and, and interesting and really thought-provoking biopics, Elgar and Bartok and Debussy film and Isadora Duncan. Everything seemed to be leading up to this. And right. he seemed to be getting... I would say he seemed to be getting even bolder with each different You know, he get more Ken Russell. When you start with Elgar, which is a very beautiful film, but it's a very, you know, you can tell he was a little bit nervous about putting his personality too much in it, and it's more of a straightforward sort of uh, glossy uh, Valentine to El- Ed- Edward, uh, Edward a- Elgar. But then but as he moved on... Ken... He...
2: Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Ken felt about Elgar. He he felt that Elgar was forgotten and misunderstood, which is what Ken always felt about himself. <laughs> and he identified with Elgar. And so uh, when he wanted to make it, he was the first person to say, let's, let's have an actor playing the part instead of film clips. So every step that was made was not just Ken holding back, which he really was hardly able to do, uh, but he did, have to negotiate every single step to break those uh, so-called broadcasting rules or the traditions, and it, increasingly, they trusted him, and he got more bold. He always made the first shot shocking so that his dad wouldn't leave the sofa set- <laughs> where he's watching cocoa ads. Uh, he said, "If I get a good first five minutes on something, I know my dad'll stay." Otherwise, he's out out of there. So that was the origin of the first five minutes of Ken's films, which are traditionally, you know, meant to explode onto the screen.
1: Yeah. I'd also, one thing that when I think about this film, just a little more more context, it's his last of, uh, of the BBC music films. But just yeah. about the run he's on here, the explosion from 69 to 71 is Women in Love, Dance of the Seven Veils, Music Lovers, The Devil, and The Boyfriend. You know, can you imagine making those heart? five films in two years, yeah. essentially? That's like, exactly. a, it's so... Every single one is so explosively original. I just don't have another word for it. And they're all explosive in different ways. They're all just, to call them provocative or controversial, I think in some ways downplays how wild he goes with all of them and in different directions. It's not like he's just headed down the same path with every single one of them. He seems to be finding a different style and a different tact and a different thematic idea for all of them. And Seven Veils, if you have seen these other movies, belongs in that same conversation with them.
2: Yes. And the devils. I mean, yes. he, he stole certain scenes from Dance of the Seven Veils and expanded on them. <laughs> yes, or, the nun orgy. Those films you mentioned. Yes. Yeah, the the uh, pagan orgy for, in Boyfriend, uh, the girls falling backwards in Boyfriend. Yeah. All of and, that was taken from from this film. Also, the the man getting uh, a swastika card into his chest is replicated in Mahler. Uh, yes. And, and the, and and the, the and sword fight.
1: Like swarmed the with sword the fight. Nuns,
2: Listomania. Swarmed.
1: Yes,
0: Listomania. Yeah, the opening Listomania with the funny sword fight. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. yes. Well, this
1: strange. is like a brother film to Listomania. This it movie is is, is like... They are both on the same ideas about what is is a celebrity composer? What does that mean (laughs) to be a celebrity composer? And what is their connections to sort of uh, institutional fascist malevolent yeah. forces how is culture used by the ruling classes as a thing to commandeer and command uh the culture around them and i think litzomania and Stra you know like how <laughs> sort of how litz and strauss are patsies to the culture around them in some way
2: absolutely it's also,
1: it's also kind of a
0: trilogy if you want to throw Mahler in there because it just these three films encapsulate these this era of very important era of German history and culture starting with, with Wagner and then moving, you know, to list, list Wagner, Mahler and, um, and Strauss, you know, it's kind of this sequence of what the importance of this film is compared to like the importance of what's going on in the world at the same time. And then sort of what these artists relationship to them are. It seems kind of crazy to add Mahler to this group, but then yeah. you think about the the insane sequence with uh, uh Kazima uh, Walt Wagner. Yeah, with Wagner's one. wife. Yeah, yeah, where they where, they, where she's uh <laughs> got where she's got Mahler, you know, up on the crucifix, and then she's dancing around and burning the uh, Star of David to turn it into a swastika, and it's
1: yes, like, doing her own sort think, of dance again. Of something else.
0: Yes, get something that exactly. It's something that like connects it to this film very specifically.
2: Absolutely. Very connected and very much a part of Ken's, um, you know, conviction that even the composers he adored, like Mahler, um, you know, they made compromises because of the times and including uh, giving up his religion for Mahler. And, um, And Ken felt that we had a responsibility to keep declaring the truth, even in the face of fascism I had a very strong belief about that yeah, and that's one thing I should you know i
1: this movie to me is rightly controversial dance of the seven veils yeah. it is it is the least favorable vision of who richard strauss was and what <laughs> he went through but you know and i when I, the, the first time i was watching i was having a lot of trouble with it because at this point in time the the inherited idea of richard strauss is that he did what he did to save his family that he had a jewish daughter-in-law and thought the best way to save his family was to uh collaborate with with goebbels and hitler of course specifically
0: i would say that any biography of strauss the three main things that they cite as controversial in terms of his relationship to the nazi party was that um uh, he went to the 34 dinner with hitler he signed a den- uh, denunciation of Thomas Mann after he left the country. Yeah. And, th- and that he served as president of the Reich Music Chamber from 33 to
1: 35. Yes, specifically after Toscanini had resigned, like, fuck these guys. If you do yeah. this, you're helping them. So That's, it's not my like...
0: My favorite quote ever is Toscanini is saying, to Strauss the composer, I take off my hat. To Strauss the man, I put it back on again.
1: Yes. But he doesn't have the excuse of... Uh, of, you know, like some old guy didn't die and he inherited the job. The guy before him was like, who was just as big of stature said, if you take this job, you are helping them. You know, he he can't play ignorant about the meaning of taking that job. He can't say, well, it was just what was happening at the time, you know? Um, And, but also, you know, Strauss was completely exonerated by the denazification courts. uh, And, and was never a member of the Nazi party and I think Um, you know, on a personal level, famously Goebbels didn't like him and used all of the same language he used to refer to to Jewish people. He directed in his private uh, correspondences at Strauss, calling him a neurotic and overcultured and things like that. (laughs) And, And so it's, it is more complicated than that. But the one thing that sort of just by coincidence, I was reading a lot about the history of Joseph Mengele after the war recently. And, um, And the denazification courts, because of what was happening versus communist Russia, there was a lot of American interest in going after the top people and cleaning the slate for everybody else so we could have Germany as an ally. And that it was really a lot of people who did far, far worse things than Strauss were uh, denazified. Uh, And so I think it's it was intended to be a piece of paper that you could hold up to shield yourself from criticism. So he and his family always held up that piece of paper. And the story of his family is incredibly tragic that uh, so many of his extended family were sent to the camps and killed that a few times he had to personally intervene to get his his, uh, immediate family out of uh, imprisonment. And so- you know this movie, I just want to emphasize is I think is rightly controversial, but I think it 's controversial because Ken Russell comes to it with a perspective and an artistic perspective.
2: yes, and he was feeling his oats, so to speak. he was given producer rights, he had had a long career with Monitor and omnibus which in which he was encouraged to. say what he wanted to for this one. They didn't have to get permission because they had in-house law lawyers. They didn't have to get permission from the Strauss family for the script. So uh, he had a lot of freedom for this and he knew very well that he might be um, overstepping, (laughs) to say the least, his remit. However, he uh, did it with uh, all the joy of feeling uh, he had just made his first movie, wasn't out yet, Women in Love, but he knew that he had, uh, he like Strauss, was at a transition in his career. Yeah. And, and he felt the uh, excitement of that. Strauss being uh, uh, metaphorically portrayed as going into the cave, a Zarathustra's cave, um, because yeah. he wrote that famous 2001 song the hit of, of Kubrick and uh, and Star Wars and others yeah, yeah. and so he you know there was that sense and Ken participated in that sense of having a moment when you realize you can do this and that was very inspiring however Ken was at his most uh, fed up with all the limitations that had been put on him and also with the fact that documentaries in general were following a formula that he didn't believe in, which was he thought was littered with cliches and whitewashing. So he went the other way. (laughs) And (laughs) he justified it by saying 95% of the dialogue is Strauss's own words because he read his diary and found that he had written a letter praising Hitler because he was afraid of losing his job, of course. And he fired his Jewish librettist, uh, Zweig, um, who who moved, left and went to America and killed himself. And so there was blood on his hands in a way, but he also maintained the innocence of narcissism, shall we call it, yeah. as far as Ken's movie goes. And that's what uh, Ken saw in him. Was that? uh, I think the most powerful scene in the film is when he's literally trying
1: to uh, conduct the orchestra with his back to what's going on behind him, to the where there's in a sort of cut together scene, he has his back to the Nazi atrocities that are happening behind him. And I think it's a vision of Strauss as a guy who's trying to say, Art is not political, what I'm not doing is not political, and I'm just going to turn my back and focus on what I'm supposed to be doing. You know,
2: yeah, Yeah, which is a sympathetic view uh, in a way uh, of all artists, because why should they be in uh, serving in the war? However, he made a very good point there that he did turn his back on atrocities in order to keep his career yeah and he also he was a guy to me this is
1: my personal analysis of the Strauss that sort of intermingles with the film is that Strauss is a guy who thought he was powerful enough that he could just get away with it I don't think he understood that like they will really come for your family that's why he's always personally intervening he's showing up where like the SS have people and he's like don't you know who I am I'm Strauss. And the same thing happened after the war. When the Americans came to his estate, uh, the, the uh, lieutenant who met him there, they were going to commandeer the the estate. And he was like, I'm Strauss, get out of here. And they were like, oh, sorry. And I think he thought, he, and they did, they left it alone. They left yeah. him alone. And I think he thought he could live his whole life that way. That just like, whatever shit is happening here, I'm powerful enough to get out of it and to get over it you know that just like this has no relationship to me and i think that if you want to be outraged at the people who did that certainly like herman brock who was you know nearly put to death by the nazis and wrote the sleepwalkers and death of virgil blames those people more than anybody you know, and so I can see reasonably for people who went through it, channeling the anger, which I think is what Ken Russell is doing, is he's somehow channeling the anger of people who went through this.
0: Well, he another 14, reason, sorry, yeah, Lizzie, go ahead.
2: He was 14 in the, in the Southampton Blitz. He yeah. saw his the person he loved most in the world, blown to bits, the little girl that was his soulmate, uh, by a landmine. So he had a personal relationship. With yeah. the war, which you see in Tommy in that uh, in the yeah. old Ken's childhood, so he he definitely had a, uh, a point of view on this.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, of course. And you know what makes that scene where he's uh, playing while the uh, Jewish man is being uh, tortured makes yeah. it even more powerful is that earlier we've seen him. Uh, playing away the critics, right? They have all those snobby critics yeah. and he's like playing so hard and he's using the power of his music to overwhelm even the, the most influential critics in Germany at the time. And so you see him getting that ubermensch sort of feeling in him that like yeah. my art is so powerful, it can overwhelm anything.
1: Yeah. And the yeah. truth ultimately is that, well, we're no going to trombone happens. these assholes straight out the door. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: Good try. But, uh, you know, interestingly, Strauss... Himself, there was a, a rumor, which has never been validated, that he played really loud once to uh, drown out a soprano whose voice he didn't like in his own opera. <laughs> <laughs> so that was what Ken was riffing on, that that was his reputation as being, as you say, uh, so confident in his music to to uh, conquer everything, even the, uh, the off-pitch sound of a soprano.
1: Yeah. <laughs> there is there is something grotesque about the idea of a guy who's so revered by Nazi culture, where, you know, Goebbels is saying, I want to get rid of this guy, but he's too important. That he's so revered that he can just get away with it. You know, that that's so revered he's benefiting from the reverence you know, yeah. that the Nazis have for him. There's no way to interpret his life except that he benefited from it. And there it's is okay. there is something grotesque about that, you know?
2: There is, there is. It's, it's like- if Even if it's not up, his fault. <laughs> exactly. And even if he was, you know, not as Ken said, he's very naive, but uh, it combined with bombastic, it was a <laughs> lethal combination. And it, it yeah, it's very- uh, tragic really that he um, didn't see you know the ramifications but that he did benefit from it in an extreme way and so do a lot of people who support you know the the current evil shall so we call it uh, or
0: yeah know, i, I and, and there is compassion in this film too if i could yeah, share yeah. like my personal kind of uh takeaway from this film after watching it three or four times uh, my first you know of course reaction was shock at how just so aggressive this film is uh, especially coming after Delia's Song of Summer which is such a beautiful quiet film um, to go to move from that to you know this opening of the caveman and the uh, you know dancing nuns and the 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 horrible onslaught and everything is just it's a it's a shock but
1: well it's after not, yeah. watching it
0: yeah after watching it a few times um you kind of more understand that you know it has to be it has to have this sort of effect on you because it it 's Ken using as you said his personal experience of the war and just sort of the, the just the overwhelming historical effect of it. His critique of Strauss is somewhat sympathetic in that you know there really isn 't anything you can do when so much overwhelming horribleness is happening um, I think what 's most interesting about it the scene Lisa, you were talking about where uh, Ken Russell appears as the one who's composing while Strauss and his wife are at home um, is obviously a parody of uh, Symphonia Domestica, right, the uh, Strauss piece that's just about how much he likes hanging out at home and bathing (laughs) his baby and being happy, just this domestic bliss that Ken Russell obviously thought was so banal and what a stupid thing to write about.
2: (laughs) He said, anyone who writes this whole symphony about bathing the baby deserves to be taken down a peck. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: this movie is a
1: parody. That's one of the things that I find so shocking about it is there are many uh, directly parodic scenes in it. And, and that it, a movie that it definitely, especially when it depicts Hitler, it of course reminds you of the great dictator. The beginning scene where he comes out of the cave and also Sproxar is playing is making fun of 2001 directly. Um, it's also, there's the sound of music parody in the middle of it, of the frolicking later clad mountain people who is obviously Lenny Reifenstahl was heavily, who played Mountain Girl characters was linked to that kind of wholesome German pureness and just the the idea of a real war invading uh, something that's implicit in Sound of Music um is it's very fascinating this movie is a parody to me it's like and it's campy so it reminded me a lot of monty python but also of like jack smith too like it's not afraid to go so bombastic and i think that if he had made a razor sharp solemn criticism of Strauss it would have gone over much better but instead it's like taking them down a peg like you say this movie wants to take the piss out of them in a very concrete way
2: it's Saturday Night Live you know it's yeah. uh, it's, <laughs> it's shockingly comic um it, you know it's a bit, such a serious subject and to be treated so lightly or even though it's not treated lightly it, <laughs> yeah it has a veneer of uh, you know, camp, as you say, hop, skipping, yeah. and jumping. It, it's shocking. It's more shocking to have that be put together and can always like to draw the opposites together. The You know, the high and the low. The Alpine Symphony with the, chill, uh, the, the sound of music that you talk yeah. about when Parody as a later ho- ho- poison. How do you say the Later ho- poison. A kid in, t- in, that, in those outfits. Yeah. And uh, and then the the army comes in and the Russian army invades and destroys that, yeah. that particular one. And he's held at gunpoint, um, which turns into another dream, more or less, where um, he was just uh, daydreaming in the alpine flowers. Yeah. So, that,
0: I think, is the most provocative scene of the film, right? If, if this film has right. a uh, listomine esque 10-foot penis scene... It's yeah. this one where his son is killed and his uh, wife is raped in front of him and then starts enjoying it as he's watching it. It's yeah. a very, you know, in-your-face yeah. sort of scene. What do we, what do you guys think of that scene?
1: Well, I think that he that Ken Russell, and correct me if I'm wrong, in this movie, he sees Strauss as someone who, who not as who sells sex but sells vulgarisms that yeah. he's somebody to reimagine Salome as a burlesque dancer, right? Which yeah. is linking it to the tradition of Oscar Wilde and Fla- Flaubert where she was sort of reimagined doing gypsy type dances and sort of uh, a certain kind of belly dancing dancer that she's a burlesque dancer in this movie that it's not necessarily that it's selling sex is bad but that Strauss on the whole sells vulgarisms and the idea of the domestic life is this that he sells of bathing the baby is like this Uh, vulgarly simple idea of the pure life, you know, and that the vulgarly simple idea of a pure life is definitely something that Strauss is linked to over and over. And by linking himself to Nietzsche and the, the Ubermensch ideologies that the Nazis unfairly extrapolated out of Nietzsche. um, It's, it's sort of these, pure things get turned into something evil, that the concept of purity is vulgar in that way, because it can be exploited. And that the complications of sex and life, and all of those things are vulgarism is exploitable. That's why it's commercial, you know, is that it can be used by anybody for any fucking reason. And you can't claim ignorance. If you know that you're selling, if you're if you're in your heart, like a commercial self-promoting type, right? You can't claim yeah. ignorance when a horrible company uses your song to sell their, you know, like chemicals. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can't, you can't play naive. Although maybe he was incredibly naive, but I do think that that John, you're it's right. him to
2: be, he it served him to be naive. That's the main.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think that you are right, John. That the film is sometimes. Uh, very fair to him and sympathetic to him. And the line that I love in the movie that I think of over and over that I'm like, that's really true, what do we do about that? Is there are always a few festering boils and blisters on the fair body of art, right? And that's really yeah. fucking true that like Strauss's music is great in a general way. You know, I'm not a huge yeah. fan of him. He's not to my style. I don't like bombastic in that yeah. way. But, you know, what? if look anywhere and there's going to be boils and blisters on any, you know, fair body of art. Like you're just not going to find the guy who is untouched in history by, by those boils, you know, or it's certainly very hard to. And I think that that's and the way. Ken
2: Russell... never did find, I mean, all of, even his heroes, he expected them to have the same human flaws he had. Everyone has. So yeah. uh, that, and that interested him. He wasn't totally judgmental of it because he felt like that was interesting to have such a great gift and have, and have these,
1: Boils and
2: blisters, yeah. Of the body of
0: art, and, but by the end, I think the sympathy comes back into it because, and again, to compare it to Song of Summer, which is about this elderly composer uh, who's passed his, you know, his prime, and you know is kind of transferring the art to the younger generation. Mm-hmm. You see, and kind of speaking, it's funny to, to talk about the opening being about a parody of two thousand one because the end feels so two thousand one, yeah. like uh, the, the old man left alone in his hotel room, right? Yeah, uh, and. You see here a very
1: balanced is... frame that's almost like the light tunnel too.
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and and the, the sense that Strauss. Yeah. What's that, Lisi?
2: This film came before 2000. No,
1: 1968.
0: Yeah, we'll be right after.
2: Oh, it is.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I don't know if it was a specific reference to the scene, but um, it's interesting just just to, to bring it up and. uh, the, the main overwhelming thing about this last scene is that you see regret. You see that Strauss is starting to understand that, you know, his silence or the, his his apolitical position during the war actually meant something and that he's this withered old man now. We've seen him throughout the film, even though during the war, he would have been an older gentleman. He would have been in his 50s or 60s. You know, we see him like, you know, strutting around with his violin with Hitler on top of his shoulders. You yeah. know, just just the the very uh portrait of an Aaron, you know, youth, and, you know, like a perfectly healthy blonde youth. And uh suddenly the mask is taken off and he is this withered old man yeah. who's starting to realize that, you know, it, that story
2: in gray all in over story. again. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Oh, one thing I love about the uh the the old man makeup too is that it's not supposed to be convincing. Again, it's the idea of camp in this movie oh. is is great that it's an overt mask that he's wearing you know and i think that again i can understand uh uh being irked by this the way this film again like the great dictator takes a serious subject and uh in some way has a ball with it you know what i mean like this this movie is um it's I think this movie might be unbearable if it didn't have an inherent sense of camp humor. And again, we just, John and I just watched Elam uh, 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 Klimov's Come and See, the, the Russian war movie about the Belarus massacres. Oh. And I was, I was reminded of that movie too and its depiction of the Nazis as sort of a roving carnival, right? Yeah. And this movie has a similar sense of um, just how grotesque the carnival is of what they're doing, that it sort of doesn't want to give the Nazis the respect of having them be serious people that this movie understands them to be ridiculous, dangerous people. And I think that's an interesting contrast with, um, the way it depicts Strauss where he's trying to find, okay, what role do I play in relationship to this? At the beginning of the movie, there's that great moment where he says, there's a little bit of Don Juan in every man as a reference to the swashbucklers. And then they reenact the sword fight from Scaramouche in the balconies, (laughs) right? And so it's like, am I the swashbuckling hero, you know, the outsider, but the swashbuckling hero is always an outsider. He's always somebody who sees him not as a part of a government. He's a reformed pirate. He's an escaped slave. He's an unwilling hero who has to stand up and do the right thing. But if he was left to his own devices, would not be part of this. Or then later in the movie, he envisions himself as Don Quixote, right? As a man in conflict with the religious structures around him, the man who's tilting at windmills, you know, so it's all about Strauss, how can I be the guy who is not these people who surround me, who praise me, who prop up my career, and the answers he comes up with that Russell comes up with are very fascinating, and they're taken, of course, from uh, some of Strauss's own quotes about himself, but it is, it is fascinating.
2: It is, and when he takes off that mask at the end, Ken uh, is on record as having Uh, described it various ways, but his, he, what he said he meant really was that he was reconnecting to his actual power to create. Yeah. uh, Taking off all the political strictures. Uh, when Ken was, um, in a bad mood, he said, Oh, well, he was a crypto Nazi, but that was (laughs) uh, (laughs) later. he, He later, uh, amended that, um, over the next 50 years to say, really, I, I really believed in the ability of the artist to connect with his um, source gift and in spite of everything. And so that was um, his statement that, that it, he just tears off all the, the pain that had been accumulated in order to conduct that last symphony. Can tears I ask off you all the question? seven
0: veils, right? Yes. That's the structure of the film itself. That That's right. It's the seven veils, the seven uh, parts of the film, and each one is kind of getting can closer and closer to the truth until the mask is finally, the last part of clothing is finally torn off.
1: Very, very good. Can I, can I ask you, Lacey, um, when I was watching this movie the second time, I thought, is this movie as much about Ken Russell as it is about Strauss? Oh,
2: yeah
1: is this movie as much about what he thinks about art in the world, and he sees a lot of himself in Strauss. I'm curious.
2: Yes, but at the time, being very young, he felt uh, that he was nothing like Strauss. He really did feel himself to be in opposition to him. Uh, because, and yet, uh, it's impossible not to see where Ken was at that point in his life about to enter his decade of astounding films as feeling extremely empowered yeah. and, um, and having permission to be himself. So, and, and all that thing about the critics is obviously Ken's, uh, well, uh, the same things that plagued Strauss plagued Russell throughout his career. Exactly, And so though Ken didn't see it at the time he made it, because I have asked him that question. We've watched it many times together. <laughs> and he said, at the time, I was too young to have that amount of self-reflection. And he said, of course it Interesting. was. Interesting. Hmm. Because the, it's the he,
1: Strauss is overwhelmed by the confines of Christianity. He's overwhelmed by the critics who see him as being low class. He's overwhelmed by uh, sort of uh, controlling censorious political structures. And it felt to me when I was watching it like this is a little bit about about Ken Russell.
2: Absolutely about Ken. And you know he was overwhelmed by women presenting as one thing and then turning out to be, uh, you know. Yes. Gucci dancers.
1: It's yes. Whatever they the, call them. The thrill of sex and the feeling of stupidity when you get taken in by it. When yeah. you agree to do whatever Salome wants to do. <laughs>
2: Write that down. Write that down. <laughs> I love that. I'm glad I have this on a recording. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. That's Ken. That's Ken. He was definitely identified with him, but he didn't know that at the time. He thought he was exposing him but i will say that ken when he saw the monty python parody of himself called pommy you know where yeah <laughs> he loved that yeah. so you know he he was able to laugh at himself but at this point in his life he was not um aware
1: interesting i wouldn't <laughs> want a ken russell who doesn't have a sense of the absurd even about his own art oh, i don't yeah. think that's what ken russell could be what, no. if, what, if, what is that character even? Is it, I think that's Wes Anderson is what you end up with.
2: But, um... <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, he does. And Ken was always able to laugh at himself and parody himself. And he enjoyed the foibles of life, he, of mankind and of himself. He, he embraced that. He, he wasn't much of a poser. He did, um, he did have a, a, such a shyness that he overcompensated yeah. When he was in public with, uh, <laughs> in the same way that Strauss, it, you know, it was fairly uh, over the top. So yeah. Um, so and so Ken
1: hard. drank out of, drank champagne out of boots at the opera, is what you're trying yes, to do. Yes,
2: uh, <laughs> impressed in public. In other words, <laughs> he said, when I met the queen, he said, I was so socially awkward. I met the queen and I said, oh, you just saw Women in Love? how did you like renewed wrestling? (laughs) (laughs) But I want the answer to that question. What did she say? He said... She didn't answer, but the look she gave him made him aware that his knighthood had just flown out the
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> But I also don't want a knighted Ken Russell either. No, no. He said Roger Daltrey knighted me. That's enough. <laughs>
1: that reminds me of the story of when um, Beethoven and, uh, and Goethe are walking from the Kundera book and they pass the queen and Girth bows and Beethoven doesn't. You know what oh. I mean? And he says, would I be Beethoven
2: if I had bowed? Good point. Yeah.
1: And that's no, what I
2: wouldn't have been. We need Beethoven to, to not bow. Yeah. We need Ken Russell to you
1: know the <laughs> be, be, uh, to never bend the okay. knee, I think, is a good way of describing him. <laughs> um yeah. did you did you guys have um um This is a film that I just want to say, too, that I feel like gets lost. I feel like this era from Ken Russell's work is very neglected, that his music films are very neglected. And I wish people would appreciate that there has been no more interesting director in the history of cinema on the subject of classical music and of serious music, that he is the best. And people need to understand. You know, I'm always shocked when people haven't seen stuff that seems essential to me, like like Song of Summer. You know, like I, you're a serious cinephile. How can you not have seen yeah. that or the Debussy film? What are you talking about?
2: I and, have I've knocked down the doors of, uh, you know, the uh, Paley Center, and you know, saying you've got to have these films for people to watch. And here they are. Just here. Oh well, there's too many laws keeping us from. From uh, duplicating those, and they all come, of course, from England uh, yeah. for whatever reason. You know, that's very strict, um, and yet they don't—they don't have the same interest, perhaps, as the international community in promoting and preserving them. Yeah. Um, although I ha- there are exceptions to that. It's just that it—it um, it has been a hard.
1: Bureaucracy is always difficult. Now, is there is there plans now that the copyright is up to make Dance of the Seven Veils more widely available or is yes. it just going to be?
2: Oh, absolutely. We've got, um, well, the thing is, is it's, it's a force that can't be stopped. <laughs> uh, I've gotten um, letters from uh, restorers in Poland, film restorers saying, I've got the crew. I can do it right now. No charge, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, what we're trying to get, though, is there's an incredible archive uh, team at the BFI mm-hmm. who are the best. And yes, they're incredible people, and
1: amazing over there.
2: They're the ones that are responsible for getting all the other composers. The five are, uh, that were were duplicated, six that were duplicated for Flipside, and they are an amazing team. So that's who. Would be the and they did the devils we, that would be the ideal team to restore it because they really do understand the the context in which Cam was coming up, and they're the ones, but they haven't they haven't uh you know they're tiptoeing around this this uh sensitivity of this yeah uh, so far, but that's not um that i you know that's just uh, prudent you know or what yeah. Uh, that's just the caution in order to make sure it happens so it will happen we just we just aren't sure in what way and i think the devils was um it was very played by um you know people jumping in with with uh (laughs) agendas of their own and so they're trying to avoid that um you know they try to you know they're they will I, they're probably working on it now, but I I haven't met with them yet, um, but they are great people and I have every faith that, it's just that I know that um, uh, there are rules about, you know, we could probably get it done in America really quickly, but there are rules that cannot be overcome.
1: Yeah, circumvented so easily.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And in the meantime, you've had the screening at Keswick. Tell, tell us real quick before we wrap up about that, because Keswick obviously is where he shot Mahler. Uh, Tommy we shot there, is that right? Part of Tommy? Tommy,
2: Mahler, Summer. Uh, summer. He, he first made the um, uh, Debussy film up there and fell in love with the place and bought a house that night. You know, he when he yeah. woke up in the morning and saw those mountains, because he came, he, he showed up at night and he bought a, a really, a, you know, cheap place because he couldn't leave. It, it's that kind of power over him. Yeah. It was a spiritual home for 10 years and for longer. I mean, we used to go up there all the time. Um, he, he was in love with Asheville, North Carolina, because he said it mimicked um, a little bit of the lake. Asheville is very
1: beautiful. There's a retreat in yeah. Asheville that I've been to several times up in the mountains. Oh. There, That's absolutely gorgeous. That's fascinating. Yeah.
2: That's your Lake District.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. And I was trying to think, I don't, I never saw a Ken Russell movie there. I saw Water World in Asheville, is the only movie <laughs> I've, been, I've seen in Asheville.
2: No, we did a series of, uh, Ken used to visit Asheville all the time because he and Ken Hankey were so tight. And I was born in Asheville, so. Oh,
1: interesting.
2: Yeah, so we would do screenings and he, you know, he would take his films under his arm and, uh, you know, show them. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean. Well, I'm Russell. sorry, I was not there at the right time for that. That would have been. Yeah, a
2: they were not. You know, they were a little hush-hush. <laughs> but they did have a Ken Russell festival once, where every theater, every cinema showed a Ken Russell film.
1: Oh, that sounds
2: lovely. And that was great. And at the
0: at, at the Keswick screening, you were mentioning uh, members of the cast showed up actually for it. Yeah. or
2: it drove hundreds of miles to show up because this is a fairly remote approach to Keswick, you know, in, in that it's, it, you feel like you're in an, another world or on another planet when you get there. It's so gorgeous and, and has a sense of isolation because of these giant Alpine mo- mountains, but also the smaller hills that are right there and you can climb them and can climb to all of them. But some of the cast members with the little boy with the glasses showed up, um, you know, the darkened glasses, his son, uh, and, that he 's a grown man now and, and he drove hundreds of miles, also the, the um, another fellow that was in the the original you know when when Zarathustra is playing and his back is to Strauss 's back is to the audience and or, or not he 's actually turned around in that the, the members of the audience, one of that those people showed up and told us the whole story shared with us all. How he got to be in that, you know, he wasn't an actor. He was just chosen randomly uh, because his friend was going to be an extra. Well, will you do it? Yes. Well, do you have boots? Well, yes, but he forgot his boots and he only had hush puppies, which are a kind of soft shoe. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, he was told, well, that's okay. Just stand on the uh, bottom, the bottom rung of the of the, you know of the. <laughs> the ascending uh, platforms and no one will see them. So he was there also the horse's um, owner was there. Actually it was the daughter of the owner and she told us stories about uh, Ken coming to her house and saying, can we use your horse for uh, Strauss to play and Christopher Gable coming and learning how to use the horse. And you know, that's the, the lovely thing about Ken's films was how, relaxed not not while the filming was going on but the uh, relationships were relaxed he was very he was very inclusive ken and that was that was wonderful
0: that's another way that makes it sort of the dark wes anderson like you were saying chris it's sort of like a theater troupe sort of atmosphere i imagine but yes sort of in the warped <laughs> you know yeah, like the, warped. the kind of stuff that they were doing yeah it's like let's get together and twirl around naked it's going to be awesome
2: yeah. <laughs> And, and uh, his favorite thing was to make his actors do in, incredible leaps of physical prowess which is why oliver reed was his favorite, because Oliver would do anything you told him to do. I'm <laughs> <laughs> up that mountain. That, that seems like a mountain.
1: power you have to be very careful with. The power to <laughs> and Oliver Reed. I don't think I could, should be in charge of that.
2: <laughs> uh, Ken told me to jump off a roof once. And and unless the other actors had said, Ken, I think she's going to break her neck. I would have done it. And was <laughs> created an atmosphere on the set, which was so... Uh, you all felt like you were uh, friendly. He always had these big meals that he prepared for people, for all the actors. It was a convivial set uh, on every one of his films, even though um, there were some films that were harder than others because they were, you know, backstage. <laughs> Just kind of, uh, but upstage, uh, you know, on the stage, Ken uh, welcomed people's opinions. He would, would use them half the time. And he also... When he got mad, he, it was always because he made a mistake. It yeah. wasn't really the other person. So, you know, <laughs> you, you always felt kind of in a good mood. There were no great uh, breakdowns or horrible things other than Dick, uh, um, the, the cinematographer that would always walk off. And then he would come back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that's just part of the genius. There is that like you, you not only can you, can you, do you have to come up with these crazy scenarios, but you have to have people willing to go along with you to jump off that roof with you. right?
2: <laughs> exactly, which is why he used the same people over and over again, and they were family, and you know still are um, I, I would still consider them family members. Well, I'm it's sure alive still like
1: that's a good a good family to have when you have Glenda Jackson and Oliver yes. Reed and your filmmaking family. I don't Alan think, Rates, you, you know, yeah, you don't need to expand your circle that wide. No,
2: <laughs> you can kind of stop there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a question that that might be a dead end. Um, one thing we haven't talked about, you know, um, Russell returned to Salome uh, with Salome's Last Dance, which is based on the Oscar Wilde play, which I think I can feel a lot of the Oscar Wilde's ideas in Dance of the Seven Veils. I don't know if I'm projecting or not. I was just wondering what, what... relationship do you think he returned to it because the original thing had been suppressed sort of again to bring up Diary of a Chambermaid and Viridiana where yeah. Diary of a Chambermaid is a bit of a remake of a film that Boonwell thought was lost to history in some way
2: absolutely you know if you tell Ken no it's still it's going to show up somewhere that's a certain <laughs> and uh he, you know he would have he was so into the Beardsley deck of uh, illustrations for for Wilde and um, and the play itself and also Oscar Wilde's case, you know, uh, that was very yeah. much a part of his uh, knowledge or experience even, you know, and so it, it, he was very enchanted with that period and also with Oscar Wilde's uh, quips, you know, were so similar to Ken's style of, uh, you know, his love of that, that um, you know, uh, Uh, sarcasm, which is more than sarcasm because it's so damn bright, um, so intelligent. So he he definitely had uh, a fondness for Wilde that he uh, was interested in portraying. And he thinks, you know, it it was a valentine for Wilde. But he also would have known him through the, uh, because Ken approached everything through music, so he would have known uh, the Salome opera. I mean, he would have known the Bible. In other words, um, Strauss made the the uh, opera based on that. So yeah. you know, Ken knew knew his stuff. He was he was very um, knowledgeable, and he didn't he assumed that we all knew the same references. Yeah. And, I and I believe also quite, that yeah. yeah. That
1: that the phrase "dance of the seven veils" originates from Wilde. That's not something from yes. the Bible. That that's actually oh. Wilde's interpretation.
2: Oh, I love that! Yeah, I didn't re- even realize that myself.
1: Yes, it's yeah. it's that's that's an idea again. Where what. Salome's dance was is sort of extrapolated by Wilde and Flaubert who see it as yeah. like, well that that must have been oh, some sexy are, yeah. shit am I right you know oh, yeah <laughs> so, and the idea of of linking it to uh, to sort of um, the gypsy dances, uh, and specifically, like the kind of veil dances, is I believe, I believe, now I'm going to watch me be entirely fucking wrong, but I believe is first said <laughs> in, in Oscar Wilde's uh, play Salome. That Salome's uh, last dance is like a very Ken Russell reimagining of.
2: Yeah, and Ken was uh, uh, smitten at the age of, I'll say, from six on by Dorothy L'Amour, who was huh. South Sea movies she always appeared in a sarong and that was that was his passion and he even joined the merchant navy in order to find her so he his naivete extended a very long time that's super beautiful though i know he was very upset that she wasn't there when he was sent on that that ship to um, to search out uh japanese bombs and to the South Seas and she yeah. wasn't there on an That's island. Such a waiting Ken Russell's
1: story. Every, one thing I like about Ken Russell is he always does what I want Ken Russell to have done. <laughs> There's no story in which I'm like, Ken Russell disappointed me there with what he did. It's no. always like, that is that is perfect, every single he, anecdote. <laughs>
2: he wanted to protest some unfair thing. He said, get to me, get out the gorilla suit. <laughs> <laughs> That's Ken Russell. He never disappointed. He never did, and he was always um, just so, so much fun. But also, he was he was thoughtful. He was kind,
1: yeah. which is
2: n- not what you necessarily would expect him to be. I certainly didn't, and he was. Yeah. So there was that. But he he was, he was a good sport. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Lisi, thank you again so much for taking time to talk to us about Dance yeah. of the Seven Bales. Uh, I'm so excited for restoration efforts to move forward. Um, glad to hear you're having a great time across the pond. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, we're we're excited, too, to have you back over here. Some of the best recent screenings for me have been um, ones that you've hosted of The Devils and Lay of the White Worm. Just any time that you bring right. one of those. Yeah. You know, Yeah, to the the draft house or to a theater, I just I I get so excited. (laughs) When
2: the three of us end up together, I love that's to me a good (laughs) night. And maybe Randy Jones will come too. It's a good night.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you got to get Randy in there. Anytime you're in New York, you have to hit us up. Always. Yeah,
2: (laughs) I will. I promise. I will. I'm, I'm and and
1: any time we're in uh, Keswick, we'll hit you up.
2: Well, no, actually. Keswick,
1: sorry, I mispronounced. Uh,
2: England, you've you got to yeah. hit me up if you make it. I'm three hours from London. Okay. Uh, but uh, but I'm, I'm 10 hours from Keswick.
1: Okay. <laughs> so.
2: However, you know, I will travel.
1: So <laughs> so got to, I, I you got I think if we make it to England we can make it the final leg of the journey to wherever you are. I think yeah, that that's yeah it's I think very- if we made it that far We'll strap yeah. on our backpacks and do a little, you know, American Werewolf in London walking.
2: That's cool. Uh, right. oh, yes. Which was Oh, on, that's great. There was filmed here, but it wasn't really. But <laughs> that's what you'll see when you get to where I live. You'll see American Werewolf in.
0: <laughs> which is which is perfect because the uh, actually yeah. the, the the scene we were talking about from Seven Veils, uh, the uh, wife and, and child being attacked. Reminds me of the dream sequence from American
2: oh, Werewolf in yes. The oh, werewolves, yeah.
0: stormtroopers attacking uh-huh. the family. And he um, loved
2: that film. And he loved John Landis. And he also, um, yeah.
0: Landis must have loved him. I wouldn't be surprised to hear he had seen this and... In- yeah. Kind of thought about oh, they, it
2: for that had,
1: scene. They, yeah, they had a relationship. Yeah. This is very funny. Yeah. Excellent. Again, thank you okay. so much for doing this. We're happy to talk about this film. And yeah. anytime yeah. you want to come on the show, let us okay. know. You are always, always a pleasure.
2: Oh, thanks so much, Chris and John. It's, uh, you're two of my favorite people. So this is this was great for me. All right. Take care. Take Excellent. care. Have a great night.
1: Thank Take you, Lacey.
2: You too.